which strikes people like me, who I'm not a lawyer, my um, grasp of the legal uh, niceties is limited, but it strikes me on a, a common sense basis as being absurd. Uh, and completely ludicrous, but that's the position that they're sustaining. And many people have speculated that the reason for this is because they know that it's their only hope, that this technicality is their only hope of uh, defending the case and, uh, and holding back a potential whole raft of claims that will come after this test case. So it's not just about these few people who are, have been uh, in the High Court recently. It's about a much bigger wave of claims that may come Afterwards, That's what the government's concern is all about. So there was hope um, before Christmas that there might be an out-of-court settlement. There have been negotiations going on between the two sides. But I'm sure many of you will have seen the latest reporting of this in The Guardian um, has been that that's not going to happen, that uh, political direction has been issued, that the, the case must be fought until the end. And uh, meanwhile, as it is dragged on and as the years go by, uh, unfortunately, more of the claimants uh, pass away, and it's a rather cynical uh, and disturbing ploy that's being used in that sense. Now, the uh, two other things that are quite very significant about uh, what happened in the court case. Well, three. The first I'll just sketch over very briefly. First of all, uh, if you look at the, the ruling that was issued by the judge, on, uh, it, on the 5th of October, which I can send to anybody who wants me to send them uh, a PDF of this. Uh, at paragraph 28, he actually lined out a whole series of factual tests um, that would be fundamental to when this goes forward to a full trial uh, sometime this year, we think. And it's quite striking how these are m the precise issues which I'm looking at in this book and which Caroline Elkins and David Anderson have looked at in their books as well. So it's, as uh, Johnny put it before we came in here, almost go going to be trial by historians or trial by history. Now, if you read some, the, 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 some of the um, comments of the judge, it's quite amusing, his, um, his legalistic disdain for the historical profession, because he says that, um, of course, the, the, the court will have to, uh, um, have to hold the documentary record to a higher level of analysis than is possible by professional historians, who, of course, can never really establish anything as being true or not. It has to be done by, uh, by judges and lawyers. So um, that's just an interesting aside. Um, but what is very significant about this is that another of the Foreign Office's uh, delaying tactics was their claim that because almost, well, all of the leading personalities in the emergency the governor, the commander-in-chief, all of the senior people at the time are now, uh, are now dead, that there's no possibility of having a fair trial because they can't be cross-examined. They can't be asked about the meaning of certain documents. Okay? Obviously, as we all know, all documents can be interpreted in, in many different ways. Now, fantastically, from the historian's point of view, the, uh, the judge's decision on this was that the, court, that the case can be trialled tried purely on the documents. He accepted the claimant's argument that the documentary uh, record now, especially since the discovery of the Hanslope archive, uh, is so extensive that the fundamental issues can be resolved on the documents alone. So that's very significant in itself. And m maybe that has implications for future court cases that are also looking at historical events. Um, the other significant thing in relation to that is that when the Foreign Office uh, argued 
in their case that uh, most of the senior uh, figures in the emergency were dead. The judge's reaction to that has been to say, yes, but senior people are not the only people who mattered. The ordinary day-to-day -day business of the emergency, the counterinsurgency campaign, the administration, all of those things were done by quite junior people on the ground. You don't need to ask the governor about the meaning of a particular document if you can ask a sergeant or if you can ask a district officer how he interpreted those orders and those rules in his particular locality. Uh, in a certain period of time. And he was rather scathing about the um, feeble efforts of the government to search for surviving um, members of the administration and the armed forces who were involved in the emergency. He accepted the argument that there were actually a far larger number of people still alive who were involved in the emergency who may potentially be willing to give testimony on both sides not everybody is going to support the claimant's case, but that's a good thing because that means that if a trial happens, it can be a fair trial because people will speak to both sides of the argument. So those are um, some of the things that are happen happening with the, with the court case. And we can come back to that at the end and we can, uh, can answer any questions about that uh, if necessary. Okay, now I've been advising uh, the claimant's lawyers since early 2011 on the, on the Army's role. So I can't really say a great deal about the administration or about necessarily the detention camps. Of course, I have a, a broad knowledge of those issues, but I'm not expert on those in the same way as the other two um, historians are. But I can speak about what the Army were doing. And as the case has gone on, the claimant's lawyers have relied more and more upon the role of the Army because they found it easier to make the claim that there was a, if you like, a command relationship between what was going on in Kenya with the soldiers on the ground and the war office and the cabinet back in London. Okay, there's an easier chain of command that to establish that way legally than if you try and establish the, the constitutional position of district officers in Kenya, how do they relate back to the colonial office? That's harder to establish in court. So that's one of the reasons why the army's role has become more important uh, in the case. The other reason why it's important in the case is because the army obviously were centrally concerned with the day-to-day -day conduct of the emergency. One of the things I'm not going to talk about much today, but which is in the book and which we can come back to if people want to discuss it, is just how interfering the army were in the day-to-day -day business of other government departments, as they'd now be called. So in terms of administration policy, for example, they had an opinion on many areas of policy that should not, strictly speaking, have been within the army's remit. Okay. So they had, they had a great deal of influence over all aspects of the conduct of the emergency. And of course, they also were leading the campaign to uh, defeat the Mau Mau. So the research question which is un underlying my book and which is also vital to the court case is the question of how the army treated uh, the Kikuyu, Embu and Meru uh, population in Kenya during the emergency and, um, and also prisoners that were taken. And something that's of particular, was already of particular interest to me because of claims that have been made in the historiography about this, but 
now also, of course, important in the court case, has been the role of law in particular. And the British uh, army have long liked to think of themselves that they, uh, they conduct their operations within the rule of law. That's been part of the public image. Of course, many people have challenged that for a long time. There have been sceptics, but the majority view has been that the army has conducted itself within the rule of law. Now, I start my book, and I'm not going to just sit here and read page after page, don't worry, but I've got a, a few uh, quotations that I'm going to draw on periodically. Um, a, a rather telling lecture given by General Erskine, who is the commander of the army for um, the most significant part of the, the military campaign from 1953 to 55, um, on his attitude towards the law in Kenya, his, his view of what, what it meant. And he was a bit worried about legal constraints uh, before he went out to Kenya. And this is a common concern of, of serving military officers, that will legal constraints make their operations less effective? It's a, it's, a, it's a reasonable concern to have. And when he actually arrived in Kenya, he quickly found out that, quote, the governments of Kenya were determined to use the very considerable powers at their disposal, disposal to the fullest extent. They could and did pass emergency regulations of severity and entirely appropriate to the military requirements. So, in other words, the law was malleable. Law was a tool that could be used as a way of uh, defeating the Mau Mau. It was not necessarily a restraint on military operations. In some senses it was, but in others it didn't have to be. And this helps explain what I think is the, the, the basic nature of the army's conduct in the Kenya emergency, is that I have to explain uh, a, a type of behaviour that is, if you like, between two extremes. One extreme is the traditional view of what the British Army do in operations, whether it's in Kenya or whether it's in Afghanistan today, which is that they obey the law, they use minimum force, they have very strict rules of engagement, and that they do not target civilians at all. And if anyone steps across the line, they are punished very severely. That's the traditional view, and there's, there is plenty of evidence in Kenya of that approach being applied. The alternative view, which is uh, advanced by Caroline Elkins in her book on the emergency, is that the campaign in Kenya was fundamentally genocidal. And the aim was, therefore, uh, you know, as the term genocide um, implies by definition, to eliminate uh, the Kikuyu, Embu and Meru peoples. Now, my argument is that actually the army in Kenya did neither of these things. It sat somewhere between them. Okay? It didn't conduct a genocidal campaign, because if it, if it had wanted to, it could have killed tens of thousands of more people. There was uh, serious air power in Kenya, there were um, significant artillery uh, deployments made to Kenya as well, which could have been used to kill a lot more people. Now obviously that doesn't let the army off the hook for what they did, but it's merely to make the argument that genocide is not um, an appropriate description of what happened there. It's also not appropriate to say that they completely obeyed the letter of the law and treated all civilians and non-combatants with uh, restraint and respect because they didn't do that either. So my argument, rather, is that uh, force was used uh, in, a, in a way to terrorise the population for strategic effect, and the effect was repression. 
That's what uh, was being aimed at. Now, in the, uh, in, the, in the book, I just outlined that there are, in my view, four main phases to the military part of the campaign uh, against the Mau Mau. And after this point, there were still military operations, but they were on a very small scale and they were really just supporting the police. So the emergency went on for, for several more years after this, but the military uh, were, were not heavily involved in that. Whether they have legal liability for what happened uh, after the period I look at is, is still unresolved because the, the position of the Commander-in-Chief uh, changed in law at that point. So it's, it remains to be determined um, how responsible they were for what happened in the later years. Um, I've broken the, the, the conflict down into four phases. The first phase was between October 1952 when it, the emergency was declared uh, and June 1953 when General Erskine arrived to take uh, command. Uh, where the most severe um, and, and indiscriminate use of violence was seen on the part of the state, not just by the army either, by um, other forces too, including the police. Um, some of the, the, the most important things that were going on in this period was large-scale arrests. A lot of arrests were taking place. Large-scale sweeps, big military operations with large bodies of troops, companies, battalions, even some brigade operations sweeping through areas uh, and arresting everyone in cordon and search operations. Um, and there was also a constant evolution of the command and control um, arrangement in, in, uh, in the army at this time as well. The second phase that I look at is between June 1953 and April 1954, which is really when General Erskine is first in charge and he's coming to grips with the campaign and trying to decide what he wants to do about the Mau Mau. Uh, one of the things that he does is really to carry on what was happening before in some senses. So these large sweep operations are still taking place, um, which many people criticise as being completely um, counterproductive and useless um, in counterinsurgency. But it's interesting to note that these, these large sweeps um, have recently been used in Afghanistan as well. So it's not something that, that, it, that was just used historically. It's a, uh, an ongoing tactic in, in counterinsurgency. Uh, but it's a very high-tempo approach that's des designed to inflict a large number of casualties with a limited concern for whether the casualties are actually uh, the right people or not. That's not a major priority. During this period as well, there were, big, uh, there were reinforcements coming in uh, from Britain. More troops were being sent out. The size of the army deployment there was expanding. And crucially, at the beginning of 1954, the um, political structure was reformed after a visit by the Colonial Secretary Oliver Littleton, creating the War Council. Now, if anyone's interested in the War Council, all of the War Council minutes from this point in early 54 until the end of the emergency, uh, it changed its name at the end to the Security Council instead, all of the minutes of every single meeting and all of the papers that were prepared for it are now available. They're all going into the National Archives because they're found in the Hanslope Disclosure. So it's now possible to be very precise about what the large-scale emergency policy was. Um, and this, this is where it'll be hard, very hard, for the government to argue in the court case when it happens in the summer that there wasn't a coordinated plan of repression uh, by the army in collaboration with the administration and other parts of the colonial state because the War Council shows exactly how they coordinated that 
on a day-to-day basis. The meeting rooms they were sitting in, what they were deciding on, which part of the country was going to be villagized, which part of the country was going to have food denial measures imposed upon it and so on. So it would be very hard to make the claim that there was not a coordinated campaign because the evidence is now in existence um, in a very um, profound way. Okay, then from April till basically through most of the remainder of 1954, the two most uh, serious things that were going on were villagization, forced villagization, compulsory villagization against the will of uh, many people um, uh, in the reserves, and Operation Anvil in uh, in Nairobi, which was a very big military operation, um, which we can we can come back to. And then the final phase, from really beginning of 1955 to about November 1956, when the army were withdrawn. Uh, were mainly uh, forest operations and special forces, a combination by the army of these large-scale sweeps, again, but this time in the forests rather than in the reserves, and the use, increasing use of special forces. Special forces had been used since 1954, but at this point they're being expanded um, dramatically, and they they proved to be very um, effective. Okay. Um, Now... In, in the book, I've just got a, a table that sh- gives a bit of a, an indication of, of how the emergency affected people in terms of what the security forces were really doing. Um, and it breaks down security force activity into um, three different categories uh, from the end of 1953 into the end of 1955. And it shows that by far the most significant um, type of operation was arrest operations. That's what affected most people. Um, there were fluctuations in the number of people being killed, the number of people being captured or surrendering, but the, those people being arrested is high throughout. Okay. So, for example, in the second half of 1953, there were about 1,800 people being arrested every week in, in the emergency areas. Um, in, in the first half of 1954, the weekly average for arrests is um, about 2,250. So it's a very significant number of people um, being arrested over the course of the emergency. And many people were arrested repeatedly. They'd be arrested, questioned, uh, and then, uh, then released, and then be arrested again uh, a few months after that. So this was a very... Um, significant experience for people who lived in the emergency areas at this time. Um, I, look, I, I look in the book um, in some detail at the army's relationships with uh, the other actors in, in conducting the emergency and I'll just say um, a few things about that briefly and won't go into a lot of detail um, because it's sometimes argued if you like that um, that the, the army's role, either that the army's role in the emergency was marginal, or that the army's role in the emergency was a moderate to moderate what was being done by some of the other groups that were there. And my view is that both of those um, claims are wrong, in that the army played um, a collaborative role. There was a great deg- degree of um, agreement and uh, coordination between the army and other actors. Um, and that, that, that re- those relationships were, were central to how the emergency was conducted. Uh, 
Some scholars such as Bruce Berman and Caroline Elkins have argued that the, the administration ran the emergency and that they were very hostile to the army's presence. And my research has found that, in fact, their interests were aligned because the army was very keen to be present in the emergency areas for as short a period as possible. Most of the soldiers, many of the soldiers who were in Kenya, the, certainly the, the high command, um, we know this because they, they've said it in letters back to London, the high command in Kenya didn't really want to be there for a long time because they wanted to be doing what they thought was proper soldiering, i.e. getting ready for World War III. The Soviets were going to come over the border of Germany at some point and they wanted to be in Germany ready to fight them. You know, none of this mucking around in the forests and uh, in the reserves. They wanted to be doing proper war fighting. And this is a mentality that still exists in the military today. It's, it's, it's a traditional view in the military of, of um, what soldiers are for. Um, so actually, the, uh, the administration, I think, looked on the army favourably because they knew that the army were not a long-term threat to their control over the Kenyan population um, and that they were actually going to increase their ability to control the population. They would uh, help centralise power, they would help uh, eliminate threats to the administration's control and then they would leave. So I don't see that as being a, a clash of interests at all, I see that as being... Uh, an alignment. Uh, another very significant group that are often um, stressed in the conduct of the emergency are the settlers as well. And it's, it, it is important to acknowledge the, the role of the settlers because they did um, play a role in radicalising um, what happens uh, during the emergency. But I think that their, their radicalising influence has been exaggerated and it's been um, if you like, easy for defenders of the army to blame the excesses, to blame the abuses that happened on the emergency at, on the settlers. And that it's a way of shifting responsibility away. If you look at the army's actual relationship with settler groups and how they uh, interacted with them, then they didn't disband settler formations, settler units such as the Kenya Police Reserve, such as the Kenya Regiment. They actually increased their numbers they encouraged their recruitment and they engaged in frequent patrols with them together, as one example. They wanted the settlers because they were a crucial reserve of manpower. Sometimes they were also regarded as having expert local knowledge. They understood the population, uh, according to some people. Many people would dispute that and say that uh, many of these settler groups didn't understand the population at all, but the army thought they did. Um, and actually, the strategically the army found the um, the settlers role in the emergency useful because they could be used um, for harsh repression one of the other claims that's made about the role of the settlers in the emergency is um, that they they were responsible for the repression the settlers were very vocal this is true they many of the settler leaders not all of them uh, called for very strict repression of uh, the Kikuyu, Embu and Meru. But that doesn't mean that it is their uh, demands that had a decisive influence on policy. If you look at British counterinsurgency policy in other campaigns in this same period, if you look at what happened in Palestine, if you look at what happened in Malaya, in Cyprus, then later Aden, the same similar policies are being applied regardless of whether there's a strong settler voice or not. Okay, so my argument is that there's a uh, misattributed causation there in, in stressing the role of the uh, settlers. 
The other groups I look at briefly um, are just are the cabinet, uh, parliament, and the press. Um, most of them were not particularly interested in the army. They were broadly supportive of the army. There was some short-lived, short-term criticism at certain episodes, uh, but it didn't tend to last very long. There was much stronger criticism in Parliament of the administration, much stronger criticism of detention policy, but not that much of the army. The Cabinet were generally not interested in what was happening apart from uh, the Colonial Secretary, Oliver Littleton, who did play an important role at certain parts uh, of the emergency. He went out there in October 1952 and he had, he had several meetings with, um, with, with settler leaders and the minutes of those meetings have survived. Uh, and two settler leaders um, put forward the view that the police should be allowed to shoot anybody they, that they wanted to and that uh, the police should uh, should be uh, absolved of the, the risk of being prosecuted for anything they did. And Littleton told them in no uncertain terms that that is abrogating the principal uh, responsibility of government and he refused to allow it. So there were decisive moments when the cabinet, in this particular instance in the, the form of Oliver Littleton, played a very important role in defining how the emergency would be conducted and making sure in that instance, for example, that some rules would be obeyed. There would be some restraint. Okay, so those are some of the groups that I look at. And as I said, what, I've, what I need to explain, what I try to ex explain, is this phenomena of going between um, restraint and then, on the other hand, excess. And there are a number, a number of... Um, ways in which this restraint and excess played out. On the one hand, in the form of uh, policy, what were the policies that were being pursued, and alongside that, I look at what was the role of discipline. How were the soldiers uh, controlled? Were they punished when they crossed the line? Were they told what was expected of them in the first place? Uh, it's no good punishing people if they don't know what they've done wrong. And one of my arguments is that policy and discipline have to be seen together in this way, that you cannot understand them uh, in isolation. Now, in terms of uh, discipline, of course, as we would expect, obedience to orders uh, and discipline is an integral part of being in the armed forces. It's what people would expect when, the, when they join the armed forces or when they're, they were conscripted in this period. National service was in place. And as in Britain at this time, in Kenya, soldiers were, in, in theory and in practice, subject both to military law and to civil law. So if they crossed the line, they could find themselves either in front of a court-martial, being judged by their peers, or they could find themselves in a civil courtroom, uh, most probably in Nairobi, uh, being tried by the civil power. Both things happened. And it's quite clear from the archival record that... Uh, from fairly early on, an, a series of orders were issued to the security forces, including the army, on what was expected of them. And one, one of the earliest instances of this was um, issued by the governor, Evelyn Baring, in February 1953. And in this, I won't read the whole thing out, but one of the things he said was that Inhuman methods are not only cruel, but they are also in almost all cases ineffective. 
and I am sure that in the future the admirable work done will not in any way be marred by recourse to such methods. After saying some more, he, he ended his order by stating that it is the duty of all officers to bring this directive to the notice of their subordinates and to ensure that its terms are carried out. That was for all of the security forces, the army, the police, uh, and the elements of the administration as well that were conducting operations. So every officer from the, the top down, uh, down to the most junior officer, knew that it was their responsibility to stop uh, anyone from mistreating the uh, civilian population and it was their duty to report anyone who, who, who broke the rules. So it's not plausible to argue that abuses happened in Kenya because nobody knew what the rules were. They were very clear from quite early on uh, in the emergency. Now the other thing to um, examine if we're concerned with discipline of course is not only issuing of orders and standards, rules of engagement and so on, but what happens to people who um, break those standards, who breach them? Is anybody actually held to account? Because if nobody is held to account for, for breaking the rules, then there's, you, know, you can argue that the, uh, the rules are, are, are pointless anyway. They're, they're, they're not really uh, genuinely issued. One of the most important cases in regards to this uh, took place in June 1953, and it was concerned uh, a company, B Company, of the 5th Battalion of the King's African Rifles. And it was suspected of killing uh, 21 men. First of all, there was a court of inquiry, uh, which is uh, something sort of below a court-martial. It's, it's concerned with establishing the facts of an allegation rather than holding a trial. And following this, there was uh, an investigation, a criminal investigation, by the Special Investigations Branch of the Military Police, and eventually a court-martial. In the meantime, while the investigation was going on, very clear orders were issued uh, in July 1953 on how to handle prisoners, uh, because the incident concerned had involved prisoners being um, shot. So very clear rules were set down on how to handle those prisoners and then a month later in August uh, orders were issued on mutilation because it was discovered that certain units in the security forces had um, developed the practice of chopping the hands off people they killed and they did it in order to so they claimed uh, be able to take the hand back get the fingerprints off it and then identify who it was they'd killed. Now from the very beginning, from as soon as this, these allegations came to light, many people claimed that it was nothing to do with identification and it was about taking trophies. So we don't, there's no definitive answer on, on which of those it was. But we can say that the Commander-in-Chief at this time, General Erskine, was uh, disgusted by it and issued a strong order banning it immediately. The commanding officer in this unit concerned with B Company of the King's African Rifles, 5th King's African Rifles, was court-martialed in November 1953 and uh, acquitted on a technicality. The technicality being that the prosecution proved that he'd killed someone who wasn't actually um, subject of the case. They proved that he'd killed the wrong person um, through incompetence. Now, whether it was um, witting, purposeful incompetence, or whether it was just 
genuine idiocy on the part of the investigators and the prosecution, we don't know. Uh, but the authorities were rather dismayed at this, and another court-martial took place um, later on on a different charge to make sure that the individual in question was punished. But in the meantime, the uh, earlier orders that had been issued on, on conduct, on treating the population properly, were reissued, and um, General Erskine demanded personal written assurances from every commanding officer in Kenya at the time that they understood what the standards were and that they'd told all of their troops what was expected of them. And he received them. And you can still find the file that has all of these um, written assurances from the commanders. Now, after this, there were allegations in the press uh, and also in political circles that this single case, this single uh, case about uh, Major Griffiths of the 5th KAR, was not exceptional. It wasn't just a one-off, but there was something bigger going on. So in December 1953, um, after a consultation with, with General Erskine, it was announced in the House of Commons that there was going to be a course of inquiry into um, the army's conduct in Kenya. And this was headed by uh, General McLean, who was sent over from the War Office. So he had, had no previa, previous... Um, expertise or experience of Kenya. He had nothing to do with the campaign. And uh, a legal officer from the Army Legal Services who was sent out with him. And it questioned 147 witnesses on oath in detail. And you can read the full um, proceedings of, of this uh, course of inquiry. And it's, it's worth reading. It's really fascinating. Um, 12 regiments, uh, soldiers from 12 different regiments were uh, interviewed ranging from brigadier down to private, although most of them were at the major to second lieutenant sort of bracket of rank. The findings were that um, he, General McLean found one example of soldiers being offered monetary rewards for killing people, regardless of who they were. So there was a clear concern there that that would generate indiscriminate killing. Um, the, another concern that was within his uh, terms of reference was that scoreboards were being kept and the soldiers were just seeing the killing as a game, really, and competing amongst each other. He found that the, uh, they weren't scoreboards, they were just statistical records of, of what was happening on operations, and he didn't think there was anything wrong with that. And he therefore found that there, while there was some competition between units, that that was a normal thing within the military and it wasn't anything unusual or sinister. Um, the other important thing about the inquiry, which is, is not stated in the final report, but is really obvious to you when you, when you sit there in the National Archives and the read through uh, the pages of the proceedings, is that it wasn't just about information going one way to uh, the three officers sat behind the desk. It was information being broadcast out to all of the 147 witnesses reminding them exactly what the orders were on conduct, exactly what was expected of them. So arguably, the significance of this course of inquiry lay as much in its instructional value as in its uh, inquisitorial uh, value. So after this, there were further efforts taken to uh, make sure that discipline was maintained. Um, we've discovered in the new Hanslope <coughs> material that there was something called the Watch Committee that was set up in late 1953 
early 1954. We don't know exactly when it was set up because the first 112 minutes for about a four-month period are missing. Um, now, maybe they're missing because it's convenient or maybe someone just mislaid them. We don't know. But it's impossible to say exactly what was recorded in those uh, early meetings. This was later changed, it was later renamed the Chief Secretary's uh, Complaints Coordinating Committee. Uh, and this is something that David Anderson's written on as well. <coughs> uh, he's, he's got a very good article in, in the latest edition of uh, Small Wars and Insurgencies um, on, on some of the investigations that this committee um, carried out that's really worth reading. Um, and what these records show, the big picture, is that both the civil power, both the civil courts in Kenya and the, the military police, the, the, the court-martial system, carried on prosecuting soldiers. So people did continue to cross the line occasionally, but when they did so, they were punished. Now, the final episode in this, this big picture of uh, restraint in disciplinary terms was in March 1954, when Major Griffiths, who'd become a bit of a bete noir by this point for General Erskine, was finally convicted at a second court-martial, but on the lesser offences of uh, GBH and disgraceful conduct of a cruel kind. And he uh, was um, awarded five years in Wormwood Scrubs as his reward for his conduct. Now, as I said, my argument is that hand-in-hand hand with these disciplinary uh, Aspects. we need to look at the actual policy that was being uh, conducted in terms of the counterinsurgency campaign. Uh, and maybe I've presented this the wrong way around. Maybe the right way to present it would be, I suppose, that in order for restrained policies to actually work, you need to have restrained soldiers who understand the political necessity of uh, conducting themselves in a restrained manner. Okay, so it, you can have as many restrained, discriminate policies of targeting or rules of engagement, so on, as you like. But if the soldiery don't understand these things and are not hold, held to account for, for breaches, then it, it, it will be completely meaningless. Now, there were four. There are four areas where we can argue that there was restraint in the overall policy adopted by the army in the emergency. The first of these was to create legal zones where, where there are different rules of engagement for different parts of the emergency areas. And I suppose you could argue in the first place that the fact that there were emergency areas and then other parts of Kenya that were not under emergency rule uh, was another sort of layer to this um, legal zoning. Um, and as I'll come on to later, you can certainly critique this approach and argue whether it is as discriminate as its advocates would claim. Uh, the, they were created in Jan on the 3rd of January 1953 and the two categories were called special areas and prohibited areas. In special areas, soldiers could only open fire if they'd issued two warnings first and they were, if possible, to attempt to capture people rather than to shoot them. Now, in prohibited areas, by contrast, there was a free fire rule. Okay, so similar to the, uh, the free fire zones that were used by the Americans in Vietnam. Anybody found in those areas could be shot on site. And sometimes they were shot on site, but as I, as I recount, there are also some examples where people who could have been shot on site weren't. They were arrested instead because the soldiers were able to chase them down. They were able to take them prisoner. 
and they chose to do that instead of um, obeying the strict uh, letter of their uh, orders, which said they should have, should have opened fire. Um, and related to this was the use of air power. Now, air bombing could only take place in the prohibited areas until June 1954, and then the rules were changed, and after that, air bombing could be used in the special areas as well with authorization from a senior officer. Now, the special areas normally with the reserves and the towns and the inhabited areas and the prohibited areas on the whole were, were the forested areas and uninhabited areas. There are exceptions to that. There were areas that were inhabited that were cleared in order to make them prohibited. There are some instances where administration officials and um, their army colleagues decided to impose a prohibited area on a particular place in order to deliberately punish people who live there, to make them move out uh, and to, to, to make their lives difficult. So um, it's, a, it's a mixed picture. It's, it's not as discriminate as um, perhaps its advocates would want uh, it to be seen. Uh, the, there were changes that were made to these zones, and they were both gazetted officially and publicised and notified to troops in briefings. Now, there is a question about how far ordinary people living in the areas affected were aware when changes were made, and that's something that I haven't been able to discover from my research. So if anyone wants to look into that, that's a good area that needs exploring. How far did ordinary Kenyan people living in these uh, areas uh, know when, it, when the status uh, of an area was changed from special to prohibited? Were they told or not? If they weren't told, then that could account for um, people being killed uh, or, or arrested as well, I suppose. Now, it's quite clear, there's a, a nice helpful quotation um, why these zones were valued uh, by the military um, and I'll just read out this quote which highlights it I think an intelligence assessment from 1953 summarised the benefits of this policy and it said quote the number of terrorists killed and captured has risen sharply the armed bands of thugs are becoming increasingly bold, driven by hunger and their need for arms. But now that they are beginning to be forced more and more to take to the forests, the task of hunting them down and destroying them is beginning to assume the nature of a straightforward bandit hunt without the fear of destroying loyal Kikuyu, which hitherto had, has been a serious handicap in the reserves. So for soldiers on patrol, it made life easier for them. That was the benefit of it, really. It made it clear to them where they could use force and where they couldn't. Uh, and there's a debate to be had about how, um, how discriminative it was in practice. Now the second area where there was a, a restraint policy, if you like, where um, a, a more uh, repressive approach could have been taken but wasn't, was in relation to uh, surrendering and surrender schemes. In total, through the emergency, the security forces took 2,714 people uh, as surrender, surrenderees. That's not people who were captured, that's people who voluntarily gave themselves up um, and surrendered during one of the three surrender schemes. Okay. Now, some estimates put the, the Mau Mau militant movement at 10,000 strong at peak. I don't know if that number is still correct. Uh, it can probably be revised upwards 
but even if it is revised upwards, 2,700-odd is still a, a fairly significant uh, proportion. Now, what these surrender schemes were intended to demonstrate to the population and to the, to the Mau Mau fighters was that the government was not pursuing an annihilationist campaign where they wanted to kill everybody who subscribed to uh, either Mau Mau uh, goals or, or to independence or, or anything else that was seen as being anti-British by the, by the authorities. Uh, it was to try and, in, try and introduce a degree of compromise the, the three schemes gradually became more um, successful as time went on. The first scheme that was started in August 1953 was called the Green Branch Scheme because when people uh, surrendered, they're supposed to walk in waving a green branch as a sign that they're surrendering. So instead of a white flag, a green branch, that kind of idea. And what's come out of the archival record recently that I, I'm, I think is an, a new discovery, um, whether it's significant, I'll leave to your judgment, is that this scheme was actually initiated not by the government, but by Dedan Kamathi, one of the Mau Mau leaders, who wrote two letters uh, to the government uh, requesting uh, negotiations. And um, there were mixed opinions about this when it happened. Some people in the, uh, in the Intelligence Committee, this, this was assessed in the uh, Kenya Intelligence Committee, and some people were very sceptical and thought it was a trick or it wasn't sincere, and some people were more um, receptive to the idea. But what Kamathi was actually proposing was high-level political negotiations between the Mau Mau leadership and the colonial authorities in Nairobi. That didn't happen. Okay, so there was an opportunity at that quite early stage of the emergency for some level of high-level political uh, conflict resolution, as we'd call it now. Now, of course, there are many uh, political reasons for the... Uh, colonial authorities to refuse this opportunity uh, it may have it would have certainly brought them under a lot of pressure from the uh, settler community uh, but the fact that it wasn't taken at all you know even behind closed doors is is important I think under this um, scheme 159 people surrendered by uh, February 1954 uh, and the second scheme started in in 19 January 1954, uh, when uh, General China, a, a major uh, Mau Mau leader, was captured and interrogated by Ian Henderson, who um, become a rather notorious figure for some people, um, who's um, an experienced um, special branch intelligence officer who spoke Kikuyu. And what you can actually see now in the National Archives, which you couldn't see in the past, but I think it, John Lonsdale had a sort of copy that he shouldn't have had in the past. Um, and David Anderson and others had, um, had seen John Lonsdale's um, illicit copy. Now everyone can go to the National Archives and see the full copy. Uh, is the 44-page interrogation report written by Henderson, um, where China gives quite a surprising amount of detail on uh, the order of battle of the Mau Mau forces, their tactical methods, their strategic goals, organisational dimensions, um, motivation, a whole range of issues. And uh, it's the claim of Henderson and others that, that this information was given very freely and that there was no coercion involved. Now, because uh, General China uh, is no longer alive, it's impossible to verify whether that is true or not. Uh, and the aim of the China negotiations, 
was to actually bring about a high-level peace deal. So that offer that had been made earlier by Kamathi and refused was now being taken forward more seriously. And this went on for all of February and uh, a lot of March as well. There were a lot of uh, secret meetings in the, res in, the, uh, in the reserves and the forest between special branch uh, and military intelligence officers and senior Mau Mau leaders uh, to reach a compromise deal. And then in, on the 7th of April uh, at Gathurini, an unfortunate incident took place, um, the precise details of which we don't know, but what happened was that a large group of several hundred uh, Mau Mau who were coming in to surrender as part of this arrangement uh, were, sh were fired on by a military patrol. And that was the end of the surrender negotiations. The final deal took place in uh, January 1955 and was a double amnesty, which uh, meant that any Mau Mau who surrendered would not be prosecuted for offences that had been committed prior to the amnesty date. And it also meant that there would be an amnesty for members of the security forces who had committed crimes too. Now, this is very politically significant uh, because at the time there was a crisis uh, in the morale of the Home Guard in particular where there was a risk of either um, uh, of rebellion, of mutiny of some kind in the Home Guard or of large numbers of Home Guards actually switching sides and joining the Mau Mau instead because they were very resentful about the, um, uh, the investigations and prosecutions that were being conducted by the CID of the, of the Kenya police. So the double amnesty was, was uh, politically necessary, not only to make uh, the surrender offer more um, likely to succeed, but actually to solve a serious political problem within the governance of the security forces. And this was accompanied, this campaign, by very extensive propaganda, much more sophisticated than anything used before. Uh, there were um, aeroplanes being used with, with sky shouting uh, microphones, uh, so, sorry, megaphones, uh, there were millions of leaflets d distributed, uh, there were films being shown, there's word of mouth propaganda, all kinds of different techniques were being used. The propaganda experts were brought out from London to advise on how this was to be done. Um, and overall, during the, uh, uh, by the end of this campaign, 400, uh, sorry, about 900 uh, people surrendered. Okay, the other two aspects of restraint, which I'm going to skip over because they're, um, they're self-evident really, are prisoner handling and then special forces. Prisoner handling refers to the methods uh, by which those who surrendered or, or captured were, were treated. And the basic rule here is the same rule that's still applied or should be applied in Afghanistan today. Whether it's being applied at the moment is um, open to doubt is the principle that the unit that captures uh, the enemy in combat should hand them over to somebody else as quickly as possible. Because the most likely person to commit an atrocity is the frontline soldier who's been fighting an enemy and has had his best friend killed that day or the day before or something. So the, the, the best practice rule is to hand over to someone who is not emotionally involved with the people who have been captured or taken prisoner. Um, and that is how things were done in Kenya. They were handed over quickly, although there were exceptions to that at times. The second issue is to do with special forces and the use of 
very precise um, intelligence. Now, the advantage of, of using special forces and pseudo gangs and so on was that what they did was they sped up the whole operational cycle in that intelligence was both collected by these roaming uh, groups and then acted upon by the same groups. So unlike regular forces where intelligence is collected by a variety of methods, then it is sent back to the centre, it is processed, it is evaluated, uh, and then it is distributed out again, which takes time before anyone can act upon it. Pseudo gangs and other special forces did all of that cycle themselves, so they could act upon it much uh, more quickly. Now, on the other side of the, um, uh, the picture, there are, as we all know from the court case, very many examples of repression during the Kenya emergency. And as argued at the beginning, the way that I look at this is that it was strategic. It was aimed to terrorise the population and to terrorise them enough, not to terrorise them to the extent that everybody had to be killed, <coughs> but to kill enough people to send a message to those who were sitting on the fence or doubting what they should do. Now, there, some of the, a lot of the evidence for this was already available, but some new um, information has, has come out. Um, and I'll give you a quote from one of these things, which is a, a, a minute from the Governor's Emergency Committee in January 1953. The General Officer Commanding stated this, that situation uh, and press reports frequently referred to patrols making contact with Kikuyu gangs, which then apparently made off unharmed. He instanced a recent report of a KAR patrol chasing a gang for two and a half miles and questioned whether present tactics for dealing with these gangs were, in fact, correct. The Deputy Commissioner of Police emphasised that the nature of the country was generally such that it made escape easy and tracking difficult. While in prohibited and special areas, patrols were not hindered by the need to challenge required by law, he believed that in prohibited areas, more use could be made of Sten and Bren guns, uh, submachine guns and, um, and machine guns. It was agreed that the Commander Northern Brigade should issue orders accordingly. So soldiers were encouraged to make vigorous use of their firearms. Um, and what's the other thing that's a bit alarming about this, that quote is that the uh, Deputy Commissioner of Police stated that uh, special areas didn't impose any restriction on the use of firearms, which, as I said at the beginning, is not actually what the special areas were supposed to impose. So he didn't uh, even understand the policy himself. Now, one of the results of this was that in the early phase of the emergency before Erskine's arrival in June 1953, was that at least 430 people were shot attempting uh, to escape. And in the book and uh, also in the, in the trial so far, I've made the case that there was both a confusion over the number of people who had actually been shot attempting to escape, but also an, a, a degree of cover-up by the governor and that there are various different ways of showing that a number of people were being uh, shot illegally. There, are, uh, there is testimony from people who were involved. There, there are oral history accounts from soldiers who were there who have acknowledged that shot attempting to escape was a euphemism for murder. Right? If you captured someone, you didn't like the look of them, you just shot them. And then if anyone asked any questions, oh, well, they were escaping. You know, We took them prisoner, but they, they tried to escape, and it was a very dangerous situation. And, of course, if... It happens in the middle of uh, the forest or you know, away from uh, observers, then uh, it's something that, could be, uh, that, that people could get away with. 
The other things that were happening in this early phase were widespread beatings and torture, uh, which were routine. A routine part of screening uh, the mass arrest and questioning and interrogation of people as to their political loyalties. General Erskine, when he arrived, ad admitted that it was widespread practice, beating and torture. It was being used to terrorise people and to extract information. There was a, a purpose behind it. There was also uh, collusion with settler uh, vigilante groups who were regarded as being quite valuable in extracting information from people, and we can imagine how they might have gone about that. And there was also military assistance, uh, physical assistance, to the forced population movement of around 100,000 people out of the um, Rift Valley province into the central province, which, as far as the army were concerned, uh, was helpful because it concentrated the problem didn't get rid of Mau Mau, but it pushed it m mainly into one province and incidentally away from the settlers. Um, what we can see in terms of military justice in this period, the disciplinary picture, if we go back to that, is that the disciplinary system did not collapse but was uh, manipulated. There are a number of court-martials that took place in this early phase, but most of the uh, cases that were prosecuted were not for offences against, against the Kikuyu, Embu or Meru peoples. You were more likely to be prosecuted for being drunk than for beating someone up or torturing somebody. Okay. And the argument that I, that I make in the book is that it's very interesting to think about the personality of General Erskine because a lot of, most of his letters to his wife back in England survive in the Imperial War Museum and he's a very interesting character because when he first arrived in Kenya he was clearly appalled by what was going on and he was disgusted by it. But as he uh, spent more time in the country and his efforts at imposing the disciplinary structure that I've outlined um, were resisted by people people who had been involved in Kenya for some time and who had already decided how they wanted the campaign to be conducted, he found that he had to compromise because the, the subtle message coming up from many of the soldiery was that if he continued with this strict approach to discipline, then there would be mutiny. Now, the mutiny word is not used very often in military circles because it is, you know, it is a taboo word. It is not acceptable for any soldier or officer to really say mutiny because it, it will tarnish you if you do that. But I'll just I'll give one last example and then I'll shut up and then we can have some discussion. But there was a report um, written by military intelligence, a military intelligence officer in uh, the headquarters, general headquarters in Kenya, that uh, went to Erskine, that discussed the implications of the prosecutions that were going on. So the prosecution, there already was this big concern about prosecutions of the Home Guard. What was that doing to their morale? Were they going to mutiny? And now the consideration is being given as well to what about the army? What about these court-martials that are happening? It's all very well to prosecute Major Griffiths, but what if this carries on and other people are court-martialed as well on a regular basis? And the argument of this uh, intelligence officer was that there were three potential outcomes some kind of mutiny, growing political divisions within the officer corps, and he said this division already exists, or work to rule. And his assessment was that, he, what he warned Erskine, was that investigations alone 
threatened to produce these dangerous results, let alone prosecutions. Even asking soldiers questions about whether they had obeyed the rules of engagement, whether they had treated the population properly, even asking them those questions put their backs up, riled them, made them uh, very upset. So actually going beyond that, prosecuting for it, prosecuting them for these uh, abuses was um, very dangerous. And ultimately, it seems that Erskine made uh, the decision that the only way for him to be able to prosecute the campaign uh, using these uh, methods of, of terror was to actually accept that the logical consequence of using a strategy of terror is that you have to accept that soldiers are going to do terrible things. And I'll leave it there. Thank you very much.